Welcome to Wild Ideas Worth Living, a show where we talk to experts who've taken a wild idea and made it a reality so you can too. From people who have sailed around the world to those who've started thriving businesses and even broken records, some of the wildest ideas can lead to the most rewarding adventures. I'm your host, Shelby Stanger, and I hope you enjoy this show. This is episode 50 with surfer and scientist Cliff Capono. This episode was brought to you by Olakai, a company who puts a ton of time and thought into crafting amazing footwear for men and women. I have a ton of pairs of Olakai sandals and even some of their slip-ons, and I love their shoes because they're all made really well so they don't break down, and they're all stylish so you can wear them with really nice outfits and always to the beach. Olakai was founded to celebrate the aloha spirit and the waterman lifestyle, and they also aim to do a lot of good. They believe that sustainability and positive living is less about an ethos and more about the choices and actions you make every day. One of the best parts is this company is a certified B Corporation, and they do a ton of giving back to communities. They even have their own Ama Olukai Foundation, a nonprofit that helps to preserve the Hawaiian culture and the Hawaiian spirit, which I'm a big fan of considering my grandma lived in the islands. You can check them out and buy an awesome pair of sandals or even some slip-ons or one of their new pairs of boots for yourself or a loved one this season at olukai.com. That's O-L-U-K-A-I, olukai.com. This episode was brought to you by Active Skin Repair. They're a non-toxic, multifunctional skin and wound repair solution that replaces products like Neosporin, tea tree oil, and even hydrogen peroxide all in one solution so you can take less stuff with you on surf trips and adventures. I found this product created by a bunch of biotech guys who also love the outdoors. The active ingredient, hypochlorous or HOCL, is naturally produced by white blood cells to kill 99% of bacteria within 15 seconds. It also reduces skin inflammation and helps the body heal naturally. The best part is it does it without harsh chemicals or antibiotics. You can use it on sensitive parts, and it's even reef safe and environmentally friendly. The medical team for the World Surf League is using it for reef cuts. Rock climbers are using it for flappers, cyclists for chafing and saddle sores, and even Navy SEALs are carrying it in their pack. To heal faster and go farther, Check them out at bldgactive.com. That's bldgactive.com. All right, all right. We made it to episode 50. You! Cliff Capono is a surfer and a scientist who talks about how we can use science to relate to nature. Cliff received his undergraduate degree in biotechnology from the University of Hawaii, and he's scheduled to graduate with his PhD in chemistry from UCSD in 2018. I learned about Cliff from one of our past guests, Cyrus Sutton, who featured Cliff in his movie, Island Earth. Our sponsor of this show, Olakai, also told me he'd be a great interview. Cliff's contributed several peer-reviewed publications to the fields of molecular biosciences and chemistry. He's produced a handful of award-winning films, and he's been featured everywhere from the New York Times to National Geographic, the BBC, and even the Inertia and Surfer magazine. One of his more recent projects, the Surfer Biome Project, is really cool. It got a lot of media attention, and it looks at how surfers relate to each other and to the environment and ocean. 
Aside from being a scientist, Cliff is really passionate about his native Hawaii and the culture there. He's also a really good surfer. He's extremely well-respected, especially among some awesome big wave riders. We talk about surfing, science, food, how you can be a citizen scientist, and how being an academic, doing good work can actually lead to a great lifestyle as well. I hope you enjoy this show. (laughs) All right, I'm here with Cliff Capono. Welcome to Wild Ideas Worth Living. So excited to have you on. Hello, Shelby. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So you're off to Hawaii tonight. So we are kind of like fitting this in fast to chase swell. Maybe you could tell me a little bit, not about the secret spot you're going to, but um, kind of how you got into surfing and your love of it. And if you have a story that's memorable that you can share, that would be awesome. Yeah. I mean, I'm going back to Hilo where I'm from to surf, not really a secret spot. Honolii, it's okay. pretty much the, the main surf spot in town. It's really, it's really awesome because it's kind of like a family, like a family place where the wave gets really good, you know, and the experience, there's so much incredible surfers from Hilo. Um, of course, when, you know, the boys or the girls are out that can really you know, surf well, yet it's, it's set up in just a way where even out on the water, there's big channels that you can kind of see the point, people really showcasing their skill. And then kind of the inside is for maybe the kids, mm. you know, to to surf and that's kind of where I grew up surfing just inside there's kind of this rock on the inside that when I was small I was like oh one day I'll go out past the rock and you would only see people kind of finish their their wave come to the inside and that was like a, a real treat when you're a little kid you see guys out on the outside surfing the point and then they connected all the inside you're like yeah that's where I'm surfing too so it's cool. I, th- I think I've always loved the big island if you if you could live on any island would it still be the big island yeah, I'm biased, but of course, Hawaii Island, I, I'm going to be there. <laughs> so, so let's let's kind of go back in time. Maybe we can just talk about you know you're a scientist and you surf and you've gotten all this amazing coverage and tons of publications and I just think it's so cool because ten years ago you got supported by companies if you were a really good surfer and competed in surfing only. Did you ever compete? Um, I would do a lot of the free contests, the kind of community contests in Hilo, um, but I wasn't really able to afford the the youth circuits. A lot of times they're on other islands. So, yeah, so traveling from island to island is super expensive. Super I expensive. Totally get yeah. it. And if you don't have kind of a sponsor to help you, it's a little difficult. And, you know, there are families that invest into their their children to compete on other islands and they don't have sponsors, which is really, it's really awesome. And it's, I think that's really valuable. Just, um, we weren't in a position, I think growing up to be able to afford, I have four sisters. So we're a family of seven, you know, it was, wow. Cliff where, wants to go and surf <laughs> Maui for a contest. It wasn't really going to happen. Where are you in the family tree? Second oldest. You're the second oldest. Yeah. And your parents, they work in science or surf? No, my mom actually, um, sells dresses in Hilo and my dad, he was working as a, um, an art commissioner for a, a bit. And then, um, now he's looking to try to improve the native Hawaiian health system, mostly to just get people more active and try to communicate how to, you know, get in the water more, surf, paddle, do marathons, whatever to, to kind of help that. You know. So how did you get into science and, and maybe, and what I think is so interesting, we can touch on this more later, but you know, now you're you're a scientist and you almost get paid to be a surfer 
because you're a scientist and you're bringing all this rich knowledge to surfers and to humanity through what you do. Yeah, I'm really, really lucky, like really, really lucky. And I think it kind of gets back to um, my first exposure to science was probably, I always go back to this story about having my dad there at the beach. And I remember I'd be just a little kid with my sister and we'd be kind of looking for a little seaweed on the beach. And then we'd take it back to my dad and show him and he would tell us the Hawaiian name for it. And then he would tell us like the scientific name. And now that I think back on it, I don't even know if that was really the right scientific name, but to be able to share words in Hawaiian and also in Latin was something that we were just babies running on the beach grabbing seaweed. And that was kind of that first kind of notion of we're doing a very cultural practice right now, but we're able to communicate it in many ways. So that's kind of what got me first exposed to science was this grabbing seaweed from the shore. And then eventually just being interested in being able to communicate Hawaiian practice in different ways was always something pretty fun. So when when we talked on the phone, you kind of said, you know, if, if you had to boil it down, your goal is to really use science to talk about how we relate to nature. So maybe you can tell me what that looks like and kind of what that means and sort of what you've learned. Yeah. So I think that, you know, we can... We can look at where we fit in nature on many different levels. And a lot of times it's easy to feel that connection to nature. When you go out into an open space or in the ocean, you really feel something, but it's hard to, to really communicate that. And I think a lot of time that gets lost in translation when you're trying to say like, I want to protect this ocean because it makes me feel good. Uh, that, that's difficult to really communicate. But with science, we're able to actually show on a molecular level you know, what's the types of reactions that are happening in our body or what types of bacteria that are on top of us that help us feel something or that actually contribute to our overall health. These are the types of things that I'm hoping science can help us to, to find, you know. That way we can communicate that to either policymakers or to people who want to really are struggling to find that relationship with nature. Which is what we need more than ever right now with policy. Sure. I mean, right now, I mean, just... Now, there's a lot of pushback with, to the scientific community. Um, and, and people ask me, like, what, can, what is the best, what can you do to, be, uh, to protect the ocean or protect the natural spaces? And, you know, something that was told to me was that just be out there, you know, go out to nature and experience it. Because the more you begin to understand it and feel it, I think it's a lot easier to communicate how to protect it, you know, when you establish that worth. But we still have to communicate to people who live in an office all day. You know, that don't go outside, that don't go in the ocean. So how do we do that? We can use science and say, you know, a certain percentage of the bacteria on your body are from nature. And, you know, that actually can help you remain healthy or can get you sick. You know, these are all the types of, you know, conversations we can have. But we, it's easier to have scientific evidence, empirical evidence to support these types of claims. So you're not just kind of sounding like a a crazy person saying the ocean heals me. And then someone who grew up in middle America, that's never been to the ocean will be like, how? And you're like, I don't know. Just like, I feel it. <laughs> like if you say, actually the, those bacteria, this type of bacteria actually keeps you you know, healthy and you get it from the ocean. You're like, oh, okay. Then maybe that's worth saving. So let's dive a little deeper for those who, who may not have been exposed to your work. You recently participated in the surfer biome project. Can you just talk a little bit about what that was and, kind of how you got your research and 
Because to me at first, I'm like, wow, this guy used science to fund some awesome surf trips. Yeah, fully. Yeah. No, it was, it was, it was start off as a pilot project um, just because the type of science I do is we look at chemicals and bacteria found in different places. So we wanted to see how do surfers differ in San Diego County. So we wanted to look at down in um, Imperial Beach, you know, close to the, the Tijuana River, um, see how the bacteria and chemicals on surfers change to the La Jolla surfers all the way up to the North County. So for those surfers. not from San Diego, he's saying, you know, he looked at the the how the bacteria change from surfers close to Mexico where the water quality isn't as great kind of up north up the coast a little bit further where the water tends to be cleaner. So we wanted to see what these these different chemicals and bacteria look like in these different surfers and we applied for a grant through the University of California and they ended up saying you know, this sounds like a great idea. It's a public health issue. Why don't you go as big as you can? So we awesome. got funded for it and it turned into not just looking at San Diego, but surfers across the world in Europe and the US. So we ended up looking at the same type of study. How does different waters give different bacteria and chemicals and different surfers? But we sampled surfers from Morocco, from Ireland, from England, San Diego, San Francisco, and back in Hawaii. And so for those who haven't heard, what's it like to, what do you do to sample a, a surfer? Like do you paddle up to them and you're like, hey, I want to, I mean, how does that conversation get going? Yeah, usually I, I try to, it's like not really invasive. It's basically taking a Q-tip and rubbing it on the hands and the forehead or anything like that. And then. But like, do you paddle up to people? I mean, I, I paddled up, <laughs> I paddle up and talk to everybody in the water, but is that what you did? Um, usually I just try to go to the place, like it's part of the job, I guess I have to go surf at these places and kind of, you know, gain a, gain some type of like trust within the lineup. So, it, you know, I tell the school, oh, it's going to take me a couple weeks to go and be a part of this community. And I just go out there, try to plan it around a swell, surf the swell and start talking with people, asking them, you know, kind of identify who are, you know, the real locals in the area, who are the people that are always in the water and then just kind of, you know, politely go up to them and say, Hey, you know, you're ripping. Uh, could I ask you some questions about the water quality? And once I talk about the environment, more times than not, it doesn't matter if they're an angry local or if they're a really cool local, you kind of break it down to what's your relationship with this place. Everyone's willing to, to share that story. And I kind of ask them, would you be willing to participate in a study that can help us better understand that relationship? And I've had no problems, you know, the saltiest, locals in the area to people who just are super pumped on microbiome research and all that. You know, when, when you kind of talk to that level of what's your relationship with nature and are you willing to help in a study that can help understand that? Everybody from around the world has been super cool. Well, I think that's good advice to people listening to this podcast. Like, hey, if you, if you are an adventurer and you also want to help the world, this is one avenue to do it, science. And you can apply for grants. Sure. I mean, that's there's a lot of money, right? Sure. There's, there's, um, there's different um, kind of, they call it citizen science, where you can contribute your time into, you know, a, a, some type of study that's going on. You know, I know there's some um, citizen science um, from adventure scientists that will go out and run trails and just count, you know, different types of trees or, you know, they, they go out and they see, okay, like are these hummingbirds back in this area? And these are all things that you can just mentally note down and put it online or, you know, these are all, this is data that can help understand the ecology of a place. And I think that's just 
that's really awesome to be able to hear that people, you know, a lot of times we go out into these special places and we kind of, we take from those places and yeah. it's not really kind of thought about how do we give back? You know, some people are so protective of their, their wave or of their little secret trail or their nice hike or their peak. And oftentimes we forget that we're taking and we should do something to give back, you know, and science is just a way, it's one way that we can maybe begin to give data to protect the places. Cause that's at the end of the day, when there's a policy or when there's a law coming, if we can inform people about the condition of the place, we might be more effective in protecting it. And this particular project was part of the American gut project. Yeah. So it's a subset of the American gut project where it looks at the bacteria found in the, the stomach of humans across the world. And it was funded by the Global Health Institute at the University of California. So what kind of things are people discovering from all this? So what we're, we're finding is that, you know, modern science now is starting to realize that the type of bacteria that live in us and on us contribute to our overall health and well-being, protect us from diseases and infections. They've even found some studies that correlate different types of bacteria to having uh, autism or diabetes. So we're, we're realizing that the bacteria found in our bodies really have an integral part of our overall well-being. So we're just trying to explore as much avenues of how do we relate bacteria to a human. I guess the most talk I've heard about gut health refers to the food you eat. Sure. So you're talking about a different type of bacteria, the kind that lives on you or is in the ocean. Yeah. You know, I th and I think it's not just the things that you eat that affect you know, your, your gut bacteria. We're finding ocean bacteria in the guts of surfers. And those aren't found in the guts of people who don't surf. So you're seeing like this really distinction that a surfer has like now a different gut composition than a non-surfer. And does that mean they're more healthy or more sick? We don't know yet, but we can begin to, f once we find that difference, we can now begin to explore a little bit more. And how long is it going to take for us to figure out if it if we're more healthy or less healthy than I mean, those are complicated studies. Those are, they, they take, take some time, but I think the, the value in these kind of studies is that we at least know there's a difference. You know, when you see someone that on the outside looks very similar to you, but they're a surfer, you know, on the inside, there's something different going on and vice versa. You know, you see all these surfers across the globe, across different races, genders, cultures, they can be connected now somehow, not just by a sport or a culture or a practice, but actually by the biological composition of their guts or of their skin. You know, th that kind of establishes a new camaraderie between the surfing community on a molecular level, which is pretty insane. You know, if you ask me, the ocean not just connects, connects us like, culturally, but biologically. This guy makes science so cool. If you could see Cliff, he's got this wild, curly, sun-bleached hair, tall Hawaiian, and you actually rip at surfing. Like you're really good. Um, you're going to surf bigger waves in Hawaii. You've surfed Jaws, you've surfed Mavericks. I love this. So it sounds like you're the kind of person that likes to push yourself wherever you go, whether it's science or surfing. Is that correct? Yeah. And maybe too much pushing sometimes on myself. <laughs> where does that drive come from? Um, uh, I would say it's a cultural identity. As a, a native person from Hawaii, I feel that uh, culturally science has been embedded in, you know, the Hawaiian culture pretty heavily, um, being observant of your natural surroundings and also trying to be in harmony 
with your environment, you know, through you know, what we call like sustainability and things like that. Now, just kind of that accountability to your place and also the people where you come from is kind of a big driver. I want to make my family proud. I want to make my home proud. And I, I want to make sure that when people see a Hawaiian, you know, leaving Hawaii or doing something, they realize like, wow, like that's a special place that produces a special kind of person and they contribute. They don't just take. I like that. Yeah. Most people's experience with Hawaii, including myself, a lot of the time has been on vacation. And I think people understand, you know, the aloha spirit and their rich connection to the land, but I don't think a lot of people know how much science is going on there. Yeah. And it's, it's maybe not really um, communicated effectively. Um, A lot of Hawaiian people realize that, you know, we started our migration from, you know, the South Pacific on canoes using the sun, the stars, the currents, the animals against the currents. You know, we, we traveled north, you know, on these, these canoes and we did it for many, many years. And we continued out past Hawaii to Rapa Nui, Easter Island or Aotearoa, New Zealand. And we kind of used the ocean as this uh, mega country that we, we traversed. And you need to be very in tune and observe and test theories to be able to stay alive and keep a culture alive. Once we arrive in the islands, we need to establish a sense of sustainability, a sustainable practice to endure long periods of time of drought, famine, warfare. And those types of things are very scientific in my mind. You know, we, we didn't just farm food we, on, on the land, but we farm fish in fish ponds, you know, to kind of provide us with the necessary protein that we needed to survive. And people think, oh, these guys would just go out and fish the big deep sea. Um, yeah, we did, but we also f- made things easy. We created these structures in fish ponds that essentially fish themselves, where baby fish would swim up into these coves and we would gate them off. So they would grow and kind of like get nice and fat for us. And then as they're getting older, they try to go out and they would just go into these cages and we would just pick them out. So it's like all these kind of like engineering feats and yeah. scientific things are really cultural. You've studied Hawaiian history so much. I mean, I I listened to Kyle Tierman's podcast with you. It's so good. One thing you said was the Hawaiians had ice cream. Yeah. How is that possible? Well, I think you, you know, I think a lot of times people think the Hawaiian, it, it's a timeline thing. I think people, I don't know. I I wonder if people just think, when you think, oh, the ancient Hawaiians, and it's like these guys that, you know, didn't have very much. They're kind of living in the earth and on the sea, which is true to a certain point. But then we, you know, created a palace. We had electricity before the White House. You know, we had you know, international trade. We had a monarch. We had constitutions. And we have all these things that are pretty modern and contemporary. And that's still 200 years ago. So it's pretty interesting for people who don't maybe have are familiar with the culture to think about what do you guys think a Hawaiian is because I even know some people in Hawaii who think the olden days were back when we were you know without electricity and you know we were still Hawaiians independent kingdom with electricity and ice cream you know it's pretty crazy so to think how about. do they get ice cream so the ice cream pretty much and the re- the ice cream story is i was in the um, i was in the museum one day and i was just reading some of these old archives just for fun and um, our last king kalakaua he wrote a little note to someone in the palace saying oh i want to have ice cream you know 
at the middle of the day with with someone. And to me, it's, it doesn't seem like a very big deal. Like, oh yeah, he wanted ice cream. But I think about it in the middle of the day, downtown Honolulu in you know the late 1800s, there's no refrigeration. You know, there's no ice cream parlor. It's essentially the ice had to come from Alaska and shipped to Hawaii and stored in these big coolers. And then you had to have whatever flavor, whether it was, you know, pistachio or strawberry or chocolate, and you had to mix it. It's like, it's like a pretty big feat to create ice cream in the middle of summer in Waikiki. And that that was happening. That just showed me the level of, I don't know, I, I would say innovation that was going on back, back home in those days. I loved that story that you told. You seem really well-educated. Did you go to a special high school or a prep school? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I started off in public school. And then I actually was in a charter school and then I got into a private school, uh, a prep school for native Hawaiian children. Awesome. So that was kind of a, it, it was a great opportunity to go to Kamehameha schools, which is a private school yeah. in Hawaii. But I would say that, you know, it really comes down to a lot of times it's part opportunity, part individual, because my sister, she went through public school and charter school, my older sister. And she didn't go to private school and she's now you know, a chemistry teacher and she's getting her you know, graduate teaching credentials. So awesome. she went through the public school system and arguably she's way more scientific and, than I am and it's very terrible. critical, <laughs> very critical on my work. You know, when I, when I have a, when I have something that I'm kind of nervous about before I release to anywhere, I, I kind of send it her way first just to kind of get her take on it. And cause she's my older sister, she just, you know, tears it apart and like just lets me know the truth. And, and I appreciate that. And I think, you know, I think it's part is the opportunity in school for sure. But I think there's something about having a, a good, a, a positive encouragement at home, in the home, you know, by my dad and by my mom. It definitely was, even though maybe they didn't understand what I was learning, they were very supportive of mm -hmm. me saying, okay, I'm going to you know, study this or I'm going to do this. Even my sister, you know, whatever we wanted to study, as long as we were studying something. And that's back to we would eat dinner together as a family. And you had to have something to contribute to the conversation every night. And it couldn't just be like, oh, I seen this TV show or something. It's usually what are you reading, you know, or what are you, where are you, what are you learning? And kind of like, and it could be anything but it just had to be something. Everyone had to provide some type of perspective that benefits everyone else at the dinner table. And, you know, it's, you can choose whatever you want. It can be talking about surfing, or you can talk about planting, you can talk about the stars, the moon, whatever you want, but you couldn't just roll up and be like, oh, the food's good. You, you get in trouble by my dad. That's refreshing. Your dad <laughs> sounds like he is a great parent and good advice to parents out there. So, I discovered you through Cyrus Sutton, who's been on the podcast. And, and you were in the movie Island Earth. For those who haven't seen it, Island Earth is just an awesome movie about land and the environment. And it talks a lot about the GMO movement, the controversy around it. In the movie, you talk about GMOs, but I don't totally understand your relationship to GMOs, whether you're pro or anti. It's a, it's a little confusing. Can you talk about it? Yeah, I guess I'm I'm still kind of confused about what is pro GMO or what is anti GMO myself. You know, does that mean I like it, but you know I'm not going to buy it, or I don't buy it, but 
I like it. Like, I don't really know what pro and anti means because genetically modified organisms are so integrated in today's society. It's very difficult to completely remove ourselves from that technology. So for me, it was when I was just out of high school, um, a lot of teachers, credit to actually the librarian at the school I went to, Ms. Fujimoto, told me that biotechnology is coming to Hawaii. And if Hawaiians want to be a part of the conversation, you should learn it. And that kind of really sparked me to enroll in a biotechnology program at the University of Hawaii, the College of Tropical Ag, to really not miss out when they're talking about this type of stuff. So, you know, I have a four-year degree in a program that receives funding from, at the time, Syngenta and Monsanto and these big biotech corporations in Hawaii. And I learned all about the benefits actually more so the benefits of GMO technology than the negatives. And it was all around the idea of providing new ways to feed the world, you know, innovative ways, you know, being inspired by nature using natural systems to circumvent some of the pests, the pests that are going to destroy crops and, you know, avoid droughts or famines. And to me, that's like, that was amazing. I was like, wow, that's very in line with, my Hawaiian perspective is like, look at nature for the answer, then implement it in a new way, use new technology. And I just was so fascinated by it. But it wasn't until I took one ethical class and that's when I started to see some of the negatives, you know, some of the people that, you know, the politics behind it, you know, not, not so much the medical issues surrounding that technology, mostly the political, who's in charge of patents and seeds and things like that. And I started to realize, wow, this is, way deeper than I thought. This isn't like, you know, Red Cross or whoever going on giving these seeds to people who need to farm. It's they're charging farmers per seed to use chemicals and pesticides. And that to me just, I don't know, that kind of opened up a whole new world, which thinking back at it, I'm very fortunate to be able to learn those things as it was evolving in Hawaii. So now, like, what's your thought? Yeah, yeah. So getting getting back to like my my thoughts on it, and I think that it's a very powerful tool that can be employed to overcome a lot of bad things in the world. But just like anything, these technologies get abused, and for the most part, you know, it, not for the most part, but for especially within the food in Hawaii, the way GMO is is being implemented in terms of agriculture, I, I don't agree with it. You know, so I don't agree how it's being used and what it's being used for. But not to say that I wouldn't be willing to speak to companies about trying to improve their behavior. You know, I think that's something that we need to just show these companies that we have the understanding and the capacity to be able to improve their technology because they're not being progressive. They're using powerful tools in a very reckless way. Like spring, just spring pesticides. pesticides, you know, it's basically when you're, you're taking chemicals and you're spraying it on these modified plants that can survive the chemical and everything else dies around it. So it's really, it's, if you just want the plant to grow, yeah, that's great. But you have all this byproduct chemical that's going out into the environment, which is, that's not progressive. That's almost like archaic, you know, to be able to just kill everything and just eat the corn that grows out of the the dead zone. Like, oh man, that just sounds so like back in time, you know, and how do we that understand our relationship with nature 
help communicate that and better the behavior of these companies who are abusing their their practices or the, the technology. And it's not so much about the technology. I think the technology is fascinating and I think it's very powerful. It can help to provide a lot of people with food. But that's not to say that's the best way we can provide people with food. There's many other ways to provide people with food. There's other ways to keep people healthy. We don't just have to rely on just genetically modified organisms and large pesticide spraying. What I think is good is having accountability to the place you live. And whether it's GMO or whether it's importing food or whether it's waste, I think that all those things, a conversation needs to be had about that. And if I can do anything to begin to stimulate those conversations, I'm going to do it because I don't want Hawaii to end up, you know, just being abused and, you know, run, run down so hard that there's no more resources to provide. Cause Hawaii, we, we want to like the Aloha spirit. We want to give, and we want people to come to Hawaii. We want people to enjoy it, but we don't want it to disappear. And at this rate, that's what's happening, you know, from, the amount of fresh water on the islands to the amount of space for our rubbish, it's depleting rapidly. What um what's next science-wise for you? Like what are you really trying to study next? So for me, I think I'm I'm finishing up a chemistry program, University of California. Congrats, by the way. Uh, thank you. Cliff's been in school for 20 you're 20, 24th grade now. 24th grade. That's so amazing. <laughs> uh but yeah, a long time. But um, I would I would love to be able to explore about how to better communicate science and also further use new technologies to really find out how are we what's our place in nature, you know, on a molecular level, on a chemical level, you know. How can how can people like me get more into science, learn more about everything from the GMO movement to our gut health? Like where are good places to start? Um yeah, you know, I think um there's some pretty I would first look to peer-reviewed um, sources. I think there's something to be said about, and that's another issue with, you know, who has rights to this knowledge and things like that. But, you know, I don't think people realize that every scientist wants to hate on another scientist's work. So when you find some type of new conclusion or you want to say some fact, quote unquote fact, you put it on the table and literally there's hundreds, if not thousands of scientists are ready to rip it apart <laughs> and just find all the flaws. And if it survives that, then it goes to the public, to the lay community. So there is something to be said about the rigor of peer review because scientists collectively are not friends with each other. They're ultra critical and they're trying to shoot everything down. So if you look to these sources, whether it's, you know, and I'm just saying, you know, peer review journals that are pretty famous, Nature, Science, you know, and then there's also some more popular scientific journals like Scientific American or, you know, to a certain point, there's journalism, journals like Wired Magazine or Time, you know, things that if you if they say something and they cite a peer-reviewed journal, some type of scientific journal, then I think you can get a little more trusting of it. I would steer away from Facebook and Instagram and things that for, for actual, I mean, it's a good way to commu- to spread knowledge but to take it, you got to take it on face value. So I think it's really cool that you've been able to also get sponsored to be a scientist that surfs. Is is there any advice you can give to other people that are just in academia that that want to be able to work with brands and and they can kind of do that now? Like, what else did you have to do? Is it the fact that you also know to make films or? 
Yeah, I think it's um, I'm like I said, super fortunate, so fortunate to be able to to do you know this, you know, like you know, working with brands like Olukai and Visla. These are these are companies that you know are are so innovative, and I feel progressive in realizing that you know we have a commitment, we have an athletic commitment to the ocean. But we also have this commitment and accountability to how we're using these resources. So both those brands are really kind of innovative and pioneering this world of how do we get people that not just want to go out and surf in these environments, but how do we have people that also figure out how we protect these resources? Yeah. And I would say that you know being you know ten. Five years ago, really, three years ago, maybe it's like it wasn't really possible to be able to be this surfer academic, you know. But it's changing. You know? Yeah, I, I mean, brands are sponsoring uh, people that are just activists. It's so cool. Exactly, and and that's you know when it comes down to it, it's just you know not, I don't really have advice because I don't I'm just trying to figure out as well. But I think you know for the young, you know the younger the youth, you know when I was a young kid. Of course, like you want to be a professional surfer, you know. You think like if I go to college, I give that up, but I think that's changing, you know. And I think that's pretty amazing that there are brands out there and there are companies and there are support groups that are looking at you know the youth and saying, okay, you want to be committed to the ocean and you're also going to be committed to contributing to society beyond just catching a good wave. That's the type of people we want to be, you know, pioneering the culture and. It's going to happen, you know. This is the beginning, and when a kid, you know, gets good grades and gets a good barrel, like that's going to be the future, you know. Oh, that's so cool! I love what you're doing to promote education and athleticism at the same time. You've come to the quick and dirty round, so let's start with the Surfer Biome Project. Any weird reactions from swabbing people with a Q-tip? Oh, fully. There's um. So there's one part I didn't really talk about. We have to take a fecal sample. Which the fecal sample is basically you use the restroom number two and you take your、uh, toilet tissue, the soiled toilet tissue, and you take the Q-tip and you dip it in and then you put it into a vial. So sometimes people just can't go. And one time, this one volunteer、uh, was like, "Do you want to just stick it up there?" And I was like, "No, <laughs> you can do it yourself." And then they were like, "Do I just jam it up?" I'm like, "Okay, no, like it's okay. We、we'll, we don't need that sample from you." And I was like. That was super awkward and weird. Oh, that's so awkward. You know, you're you're also a big advocate for. We didn't get to talk about this too much, but for eco friendlier surfboards. So,、yeah. what boards are you writing, and and what makes an eco friendlier surfboard? Yeah, so I um, I work a lot with Maddie Rayner. He's a shaper on Oahu,、um, and we were just trying to find better materials that are accessible because you know I can probably find a way to make mushroom surfboards that are super eco friendly or. You know, biodegradable, but we want to really explore technology that is accessible to anyone, me, like you, or any of the listeners on the podcast. And right now, I found that although they maybe not be hundred percent bio based or from renewable sources, there are some really、uh, great companies that are you know, spearheading the eco friendly surfboard movement.、Um, Entropy Resins is one based out of San Francisco. ProLink Epoxies has a BioLink formula for glassing surfboards. With、uh, you have Marco Foam that uses recycled EPS to create new blanks. 
Because um, regular foam is just a bunch of crazy chemicals. Polyurethane is just, it comes down to that question between recyclability or biodegradability. And right now, polyurethane is really neither. So we want to move away from polyurethane, regular PU blanks, and go towards you know, EPS, recycled epoxy, because they're recyclable. And then there's Arctic foam is coming out with this algae foam, which is potentially biodegradable. So as long as you're getting into recyclable or biodegradable, I think it's the right step forward. And, you know, the amazing guys at Sustainable Surf have this criteria um, through an EcoBoard project to really kind of provide the consumer with kind of a, a security and knowing I'm buying something that is using one of these technologies. If you can't get your local shaper, some of these tools. That's great. Um, so speaking of surfboards, what sort of boards do you ride? Like what's, what's your quiver look right, like right now? Oh, it's so, so many different kind of boards. What's so, your go-to right now? Right now I've been riding um, a wooden Hawaiian surfboard that my friend Brandon Ohuna made from Hilo. And this thing is just, especially for these like, clean California fall days offshore. It's trimming down the wave has been like Does it have unmatched. fins? No fins. So an yeah. Alaya. Yeah. Beautiful. Um, for those who don't know what an Alaya is, it's a finless board that feels like you're surfing on a banana peel. But if you're <laughs> as good as Cliff, it's probably really fun and you can do spins on it. It's awesome. What's your morning routine? Morning routine, um, just wake up, make some tea, check the waves and go to lab. <laughs> Love it. Advice you'd give to your 15 year old self. Oh, 15. Mm. What were you like at 15? 15. I was kind of a, um, kind of a rascal. I'd say maybe I would, I would just tell him to be steadfast. Like what you're doing, it's going to be all right. Love that. And if you could, can you, you know, leave us with, with one message, what can we do to help the environment? You know, where can we start? Yeah. I mean, again, just like back to what, you know, I said in the beginning, just being out in the environment. I think that's so powerful to be able to go out of these spaces and feel it. And it's difficult to communicate that with words. So, you know, I think once you're able to get out there, you can show someone else. You can show your friend or your neighbor or your relative or your cousin or a stranger like what that feels like because you know, that's, I feel, is what's going to help change a lot of the neglect yeah. that's happening on the environmental spaces. Well, Cliff, thank you so much for coming on. Where can we find more? What's your website? My website is cliffcopono.com, which I barely update, but earn, or there's Instagram. Cliff underscore Capono. Awesome. Thank you to Cliff for sharing your stories last minute with me before jetting off to surf big waves in Hawaii. I hope you scored. Thank you to Cyrus Sutton, episode 31, for bringing my attention to Cliff through your movie Island Earth, which is a must-see for all. You can learn more about Cliff, read about the Surfer Biome Project, watch his videos surfing because he absolutely rips, and more at his website, cliffcapono.com. That's C-L-I-F-F-K-A-P-O-N-O.com. Okay. Thank you so much. I cannot believe we made it to episode 50. When I started this podcast about this time last year, my goal was just to get to 50 episodes. At episode 50, I pretty much wanted to throw in the towel. But I didn't because I've been so inspired by listening to my guests and from the feedback all of you have written me. 
So next year, we're coming back and we're making a few improvements. Now is the time to give me feedback and I'd love to hear from you. Along with the show notes of all the guests, if you go to wildideasworthliving.com, there's a way to contact me. I'd love to hear from you what you liked, what could be improved, what you want more of. To those writing reviews on iTunes, including one recently from Speedy G. One, two, four, three. Thank you so much. We love reviews on iTunes. They're hilarious. So keep them coming. Thanks to our sponsors for supporting this show, Active Skin Repair and Olakai Sandals. They make amazing sandals. Check them out. And thanks again to you. Just remember, wherever you are, some of the best adventures often happen when you follow your wildest ideas. We have some awesome guests coming up. We have Sal Masakela swimmer Diana Nyad, and a big Olympic snowboarder. So stay tuned. We'll see you next week. 